Now, what would be the odds that that was happening again, that that wasn't a new report? Was that a new report or an old report? That's what I'm asking. Is it a new report or an old report? Is that a new report? Well, we don't know. When a seasoned sports fan teams up with a millennial, opinions may vary, but the debates assuredly won't disappoint. Check your sources. It's New Report, Old Report. Here's your hosts, John Lund and Al Renato. Well, Al, another exciting week in athletics. Despite it being September, we have the NBA playoffs. We have the NHL playoffs. We have excitement in sports. We have the hope, maybe the somewhat optimism that college football is only a week away from coming, that the NFL is shortly behind it. It's a good time to be doing a sports show when there's actually sports to talk about. And shockingly, that's where we'll start tonight. As we record this, the night of a couple exciting NBA games, a game seven, a series that has drawn a lot of excitement unexpectedly over in the Eastern Conference, and fireworks in the National Basketball Association. And starting with the game that ended before we came on here, the Miami Heat going up 2-0 against the Eastern Conference darling Milwaukee Bucks. This is a team that was supposed to coast to the NBA Finals, Al. And they're down 2-0 to Jimmy Butler, Eric Spolstra, Pat Riley, Evan Cohen. What's going on with the Bucks? Well, Big John, first of all, as our folks hopefully have come to realize by now, it's all about the bubble. It's all about the bubble. That's where it's all coming down. The NBA deserves a huge amount of credit for pulling this thing off and having not just hotly competitive playoffs, but a very exciting end of their regular season, which saw the Blazers rally out of nowhere and get in, which saw the Phoenix Suns basically go undefeated in the bubble or maybe they lost the game, but they had the best record in the bubble just wind up on the outside looking in. The playoffs have been, I just think, better than we could have expected considering the circumstances. With no fans, no home, court, no travel, uh, no refereeing where you're questioning why it's one way at home and another way on the road, all an even playing field, so to speak. You had an incredible Game 7 last night, an old-school Game 7, a Game 7 I love among the, between Denver and Utah who rallied from down 3-1 to take it in four games to three, of course. The Nuggets, 80-78. to 78. That's right, folks. That's not a third-quarter score. That was the final score. Good old-fashioned knockdown, dragout defense, and a game that wasn't dominated by nothing but threes. Medium-range jump shots, guys going to the rack, young Donovan Mitchell, uh, young Mr. Murray, two superstars 
to be stars right now, but superstars to be uh, carrying their teams to the seventh game, both struggled a little bit, especially Mitchell in the first half came on strong in the second half. And then a wild ending, the big guy, Jokic led the way he hit the winning bucket with a little quasi half hook jump shot, push shot from the middle of the lane. Uh, they put them ahead by two. They get a steal off of Mitchell. And then Jamal Murray, as great as he was, decides to go to the basket, makes a perfect dish to his team who misses the layup. They get the rebound. Mike Conley, who could not put the ball in the ocean all night, but was terrific in the playmaking front, winds up with a three. Mitchell wide, wide, wide open on the other side of the court. But who knows if he could have even gotten the shot off in time, depending on when the pass was made to him. Conley had a great look. And it, I thought it was going in, thought it was going in and that they were moving on instead in and out. Denver comes back from three, one wins in seven Murray, great sports goes over, picks up his arch rival Mitchell. They have a huge hug, handshake, realize what they just went through together. And Denver moves on to take on the clip joint. And tonight we have so far, what looks like the makings of another terrific game seven. With everybody's team we love to hate, the incredibly boring, nothing but three Houston Rockets, uh, up 61-58 at the half against OKC. If it's close late, you got to like OKC because they lead the league in these comebacks late. But the big news besides that is game two, as you alluded to tonight, Miami pretty much up the whole game. And Denver rally, or excuse me, the Bucks rally. It looks like it's going to overtime, but they call a foul on Giannis on Jimmy Butler from a quarter three at the gun after the ball is turned loose. And Jimmy Butler knocks down the winning free throw with no time left. And the number one rated best record in the league, top of the Eastern Conference, Milwaukee Bucks, are down two zip to Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, Chris Bosh, Mike Skinny Miller. Wait, wait a minute. Wait. Shane. Oh, no, wait, wait. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo. How about that? Two, two zip heat. Who, by the way, folks, don't look down. The Miami Heat have not lost a playoff game in the bubble. So the Heat are rolling. And now we'll really see what the Bucs are made of. Remember last year, the Bucs were up to love in the conference finals and lost four straight to Toronto. Now roles are reversed. They're down to zip. Let's see if they can get up off the mat and win game three, obviously, which is necessary to make it a series. Yeah, this is, this is quite a bit of pressure for the Milwaukee Bucks. It's, Quite a bit of pressure for Giannis Antetokounmpo, just named aptly the Defensive Player of the Year, by the way, leading into this series, and then getting ripped on the old Twitter machine after game one for his defensive play, not switching on Jimmy Butler, getting asked about it after the game, and 40 for, for the Jimmy Butler, Butler and then basically... 40 for Jimmy the Butler did it. So it's just all about winning. Yeah. And thank God I'm out of Philly. But they ask Giannis, like, how come you didn't switch on this dude? He was tearing you guys up. And he's like, why are you asking me that question? 
basically dismissing them. Like the nerve of you to even ask such a question. It's like, dude, you're the defensive player of the year. You want to hop on him for a couple plays down the stretch, see if that might help you guys. And then tonight, when he does get out there on him, on the final shot of the game, he follows him. Allegedly, perhaps. There was a foul. Questionable. Very questionable. You know, I thought he was fading away and thus not entitled to, to a, a clear landing spot. The shot was gone. The ball was gone. Brushed him a touch after he turned the ball loose. Did not affect the shot. I'm sorry. I'm not calling. Now, remember, a few seconds earlier, Dragic got called for stepping under Middleton up three, and that allowed Middleton to knock down three free throws uh, with four-plus seconds to go to turn a three-point game into a tie. So I guess you can argue what goes around comes around, called both ways, but I did not like – and I have no, I literally no rooting interest in this series at all other than wanting to see a good series, and that doesn't mean you know I want it 1-1. I just – in terms of fairness – I'm not calling that. I'm not calling that because it didn't affect the shot and it's literally deciding the game. It's a tie game. Right. Not down two, not down one. It's a tie game. I mean, Jimmy Butler's going to miss both free throws. I mean, come on. You're deciding the game with that call. I, I just, I'm sorry. NBA officials, I understand that. Uh, best in the world. But you just I, – I can't call that unless it affects the shot. And I, I didn't see it affect the shot. It was it was gone. It was away clean. He didn't barge him. He didn't deck him. You know, where you could argue still in the act of shooting. He brushed up against him, if at all, after the ball was clearly gone. So I thought it was a horrific call. Um, but as I said, you know, kind of a ticky-tack on Dragic to put Middleton at the line. But he still had to make three free throws to tie. Now, granted, he's a great free throw shooter, but this one, you virtually decide the game. So I, I, I did not like the call. It's a tough call. Very tough call. And, and in the postseason, especially, it doesn't matter what game it is. Once you get out of that first round, that's when things start getting interesting and series can actually go in the way of the quote unquote underdog. And a guy like Jimmy Butler has been coming out and playing with his his pants on fire, showing the world a little bit of Mamba mentality with his answers after the game. I'm just out here to ball this whole time. He's been in the bubble, just continuing to tell people I'm out here to ball. I'm not getting distracted. I'm not bringing in my family members when it's time for that. Back to the room, $20 a cup coffee, dribbling the ball, waking people up all about the bubble and I'm lighting everybody up. It's been great. So now if you're Giannis in the Bucks, all right, now show us something. Show us something. And ditto, not that they haven't shown us plenty already, and almost like they, they don't owe us anything, but they do play with a chip on their shoulder. They do claim, and rightfully so, that they don't get enough respect. Can the defending champs get up off the mat? After getting handled easily in game one, blowing a game two lead, down the stretch and Celtics too. Raptors love uh, Raptors could not make shots last night when it counted Had plenty of open looks. Uh, 
we're stuck with a very difficult Fred Van Vliet long left side three-pointer to try and tie it last night. Uh, not not a great look. I mean, we've seen shots like that go in, but not very often. And Boston with their you know magical triumvirate right now of Kemba Walker, Jalen Brown, and I think the superstar to be Jason Tatum, who I thought was the best player in that draft, and uh, I think I'm going to be right, uh, are up 2 nothing on Toronto. Gordon Hayward is supposedly due back. I'm not sure if he's going to play, but due to rejoin the bubble, uh, if I saw correctly, which will be a shot in the arm for them. But they're getting, you know, the play they got last night from, uh, you know, from Smart was just, I mean, it's five straight threes in the fourth quarter when no one else could score after Tatum carried him in the third quarter. Uh, Four-point plays, knocking him down. You know, Smart, I've always said, is a, is a hard-working player, a quality player, a guy who went on your team, but a guy who's not as good as he thinks he is, and a guy who will not hesitate to take shots in a big spot when he's really not the guy you want to take. And yesterday, in the fourth quarter, now granted it wasn't game time, it was the first six minutes of the fourth quarter, but he couldn't miss. And he shot them back into the game and then into the lead. Because he was just unconscious. Absolutely. Five straight threes, 16 points in the first half of the fourth quarter for Marcus Smart. And that flipped the game. Absolutely positively flipped the game. Not going to be easy to come out of this hole, especially with how the bubble is for both these teams. Now, there is an advantage for Toronto in that, Technically, they wouldn't, they would be going to the Boston Garden in normal times. They will not be, but it's also a disadvantage because they weren't in Canada for the first two games and lost both of them. So they don't have that home field advantage, home crowd advantage, I I should say, that is, I mean, Toronto Raptors are renowned for it. But it's funny to watch the first two games and in the back of your mind think, geez, if you guys still had Kawhi, this would be a lot different. This would be a lot different than what we're seeing right now. As I have said, and will say again, you could make an argument that this is, and with the footnote of some players not coming, i.e. every Bradley, but no real superstars, not coming to the bubble, you can make an argument that this is the most pure slash purest NBA postseason and ultimate champion in history because of it being on a totally even playing court in terms of no travel, one site, even-handed officiating, and the bench players don't have to travel. As a conduit to that or a corollary to that, you can also make the argument that if a favorite wins – they are entitled to more credit because they didn't have the advantage of home court advantage. And if an underdog wins, they are entitled to less credit for the upset because they didn't have to climb the mountain of being on the road and traveling, playing in the other team's home four to seven, dealing with home cooking uh, four to seven, being against the odds uh, and always 
climbing uphill, so to speak, against the favorite who everybody thinks is going to win, everybody expects is going to win, everybody pretty much assumes is going to get the benefits of the whistle, uh, who everyone thinks the NBA wants to win for TV ratings, whatever the case may be. You're not battling a lot of the things you would normally battle. And as a result, I would make the argument that, as I said, favorites should get more credit and underdogs should get less because the playing field is more even than ever. The advantages the favorites usually have because the home court advantage are gone and the detriments uh, that the underdogs usually have to face are not there. Your thoughts on that? I agree. A hundred percent. Even though they try to pump in as loud of crowd noise as they can, like when Jimmy Butler was taking those last two free throws, because it was a Bucks home game, mind everyone, though they did not get the home game call when Giannis went to try and block the shot. It's also interesting, too, that we're seeing in real time the impact of what these games are having on the players, as you would in a postseason, based on how the games go. Jamal Murray's talking to Scott Van Pelt after his game seven win. And Scott goes, Hey, we'll see you out there again on Thursday. And Jamal goes, we're playing Thursday. And Scott's like, yeah, man, you're playing, t- playing Thursday. He says, we only have two days off. <laughs> and you could tell in that game. I mean, a low scoring game like that, not in the 1990 postseason, has to be a little bit of fatigue. In a game seven, you could see it well, from the a star lot, players. A lot, of their, a lot of the shots you saw in game seven down the stretch were short. Um, so you wonder if they were a little tired, but they played very hard defensively. They did go up and up and down. Um, I, I really thought that was a throwback game, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't have to see every one of these games be 122 to 119 uh, with nothing but threes and everybody making every shot wide open. What I loved yesterday is in a tie game after Utah came all the way back, Jamal Murray, not settling for any threes. He got his defender on his hip, went to the basket and pulled up for the little mid range, 10 to 12 foot old school banker off the glass, incredibly difficult shot. I don't care how open you are. That is a tough shot to use the glass off the dribble and rising. They get a stop. And the next time down the court, he starts the same way, but finishes very differently. He finishes at the rim, at the rim in the big, takes it right into the big guy's chest. So it was two old fashioned buckets from Jamal Murray, not settling. I love the fact that guys aren't settling. Go to the 10, finish, pull up with a little mid-range, show me some versatility instead of just standing out there, dribble, 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 step back, bomb. It's so monotonous. Well, conversely, for settling, it was interesting the way Utah handled its last couple possessions, playing their hand of we're getting the ball in the hand of Donovan Mitchell no matter what. They tried doing it after a timeout with 13 or so seconds left. They can inbound it. They have to call another timeout again. So they don't have one after the missed layup that led to the Connolly miss for the game winner. I don't know if they would have called it. They might've wanted to play it out, but I presume they would have called timeout there at a, at a chance to draw something up. They were just showing everyone 
we're going with our best guy, whether you like it or not, which isn't necessarily the worst call, but it looked ugly watching Donovan Mitchell knowing full well what he was planning to do, trying to drive to the basket. Maybe he would have tried to kick it out, but gets it stripped, and that just starts the train going in the wrong direction for Utah in those last couple possessions. Now, you want the ball in your player's last hand, obviously, but I don't. it didn't at least look like there was a backup plan if he was well-guarded, if he wasn't open, what they were going to do. I think they were just happy with, well, he's carried us here. No pun intended. He's the reason why we're winning these games or have won them. Let's give him one more shot. But the Jazz, I'm sorry, the Nuggets were 100% ready for what well, they Gary, planned to do. Gary Harris really stepped up there and, you know, made Mitchell go by him and not settle and then had the poke check. Uh, and then they tear down court. Look, Murray's still a young player. He has a brain fart. He's got the numbers. Uh, instead of pulling it out and getting his two free throws to finish the game, he attacks. And they, they are pretty, he made a great pass. Uh, he made the perfect pass on a normal three-on-two break. But his guy misses the layup. Uh Utah gets the rebound. They kick it out nicely. And uh, look, as I said, I I thought Mike Conley shot too much, especially in the fourth quarter last night. He's got the guts of a terrier. He plays so hard. He's a great guy. Anytime he interviews with him, uh, wonderful guy and great playmaker. He had some great passes down the stretch for dunks uh, off of penetration, but he also could not make a shot. And, of course, he winds up with the ball in his hands. And, look, got an easy shot. Got a good, clean look from maybe three, four feet behind the line, wouldn't you say? And, no, look, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stroke. Follow through. Like I said, for all the world, thought it was going in. Pretty as a picture. Halfway down, came out. Uh, Could he have found Mitchell on the other side of the court there? Maybe. I don't think there would have been enough time, to be honest with you. Would there have been enough time? Would the pass have gotten through? Because that would have been a full-blown cross-court pass that would have to have some air under it. Right. And Plumley was close to... Yes, because to, to Plumley's credit, remember, Mitchell did not go back down court. Right. After the steal. Which was another thing. And, like, what, what's, what's happening? You know what it reminded me of? The end of a, a, a tournament game in the NCAA tournament where it's just chaos for the last three or four possessions, yep. a missed yep. layup, a, a chance at the buzzer. It's going to go down. That's how the ending was incredible. And Plumley, to his credit did not go down court either. He stayed back in Mitchell's vicinity to make sure Mitchell couldn't get a snowboard. Yep. I, I don't know if it was to make sure, but it turned out to make sure Mitchell couldn't get a snowboard. Uh, I'm sure the last thing Plumley probably expected was uh, his team to race down court on a three on two and miss a layup, he probably figured, all right, I'm as well just hang here because we're going to get fouled and shoot free throws. But that, of course, never came to fruition. And there's Mike Conley, left wing, uh, on the run, pull up. Like I said, I thought it was going in. I thought it was going in. It almost went in to quote the ending of the Gordon Hayward missed shot, mind you, a missed shot against. The national champion, Duke Blue. Your beloved. Your beloved. One of the worst final calls of all time. It almost went in. We don't know who won the game for 10, 15 seconds after that. He's worried about the shot almost going in. Well, it didn't. Jim. 
Jim Nance. Anyway. <laughs> Hello, friends. Anyway. Hello, friends. So now the not well-rested at all Denver Nuggets get rewarded with a rested Los Angeles Clippers team. Wonderful. Great. The Western Conference. You got to love it. Paul George now with, with the renewed sense of confidence. Maybe the playoff P nickname will catch on this time. Just put my man, Jerry, Jeremy Grant on. That's true. But Jeremy, let, let the defensive stalwart Jeremy Grant check PG-13. My man from the Qs. There's no sense predicting our Lakers at this moment because we don't know who they are going to play. And We do know that they're fresh. We do know that yes. they're ready. We do know that A.E. and LeBron finished on a high note. Both, I believe, shooting 12 for 16. Is that correct? I know they both shot... A, over 70%. I think they became the first pair of players, possibly if I heard this one correctly, because they just, every game they have a new, a new first time stat. I think they became the first pair of teammates to shoot over 70% and score over 30 points. Was it in an NBA playoff game? Something wacky like that, where it was, it was based on their shooting percentage. And the number of points scored. Maybe it was over 40. Did they both think they were over 40? I don't think they both went over 40, but they were over 40. I know AD did. I think LeBron had what, 36? Yeah, something like that. And AD had what, 42, 43? But I, maybe it was over 30 and over 70%, possibly, because I think they were about 12 for 16, somewhere along those lines. Yeah, I think Bottom it was 76% they, 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 for them, so that would make sense. They, they, they both had terrific games. Uh, another good game from OCP, who's playing really well. So, as we've said before, the Lakers don't need a consistent third score. They need anybody to be a third score. It can be a different guy every night. And and Nick Wright's favorite player, Mr. Plus Minus, uh, the one and only KG veteran, former Kentucky Wildcat, and NBA champion, Rajon Rondo, uh, is rejoining the team. May or may not be ready for game one, but you would think would play some in this series. A lot of Laker fans would say, uh, let's just stick with the whirling dervish. Let's just stick with the gym rat. Let's just stick with the Italian stallion. Um, but you love Rondo's playoff experience. You love his leadership. You love his defense. So we will see how that pans out. And A, if he's ready for game one, and if not, when he is ready, uh, how many minutes does uh, does he actually play, and uh, does he take minutes away from everybody's favorite gym rat on the Lakers? Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. We'd be remiss, too, if we didn't mention what happened leading into these games that we're able to talk about. We spent last week breaking down what happened in the games, previewing and looking ahead to what would happen in the games in the second round, and the world happened after we did the show and the events that went on in Wisconsin and the events that have been just going on in our country in general had the players get together started with the Milwaukee Bucks and say, we're not playing tonight. Teams start following their lead. We're not playing tonight. 
other sports start following their lead. We're not playing tonight. Then the NBA players get together. They talk with the owners, Michael Jordan and Chris Paul close, good friends trying to get to the bottom of what the owners can do, what the sport can do, at least try to do something for the players, listening to the players. It was an incredibly impactful couple of days. The part that's unfortunate for me, and I've echoed this before is the situation of the world as it falls for sports. I mean, it's nothing compared to what I brought it up for where, Oh, it would be nice if these games or these moments were played in front of fans and on their home courts. And could you imagine the scenes, but for a protest to happen, a boycott to happen, a player decision to happen in the NBA playoffs in a sold out arena minutes before the game, the home team decides to not come out and play basketball. The impact that that would have, because now it's touching people's wallets. You start touching people's wallets. You're going to get fools that don't understand the situation, mouthing off and being pissed and mad online that these players have an awful lot of nerve sitting out this game. When I paid my hard earned money to come watch Giannis Antetokounmpo play, my son has never seen him play basketball. This was his promise. You don't deserve to be paid. You guys should be fine. Get out there and do your jobs. I have wanted to watch LeBron James for years. I finally saved up enough money and you guys have the nerve to sit these games out. It's unfortunate. We didn't get to see it for the magnitude that it could have been in the moments of normal times when people are around and it would have had more of an effect on the product. Now it was still an absolutely incredible moment, a memorable one across sports. The only thing that I'm, I'm a little sad about for it is that it happened in front of empty stadiums and it happened in a time where people are just maybe excited to just even have sports. We didn't even expect to have sports at this point. We're just happy that they're on TV. Hell, if they miss a couple games, they'll probably come back. It'll be fine. And if they don't, whatever, we still have football coming. Cause that's another argument that people will say. Well, the NFL's coming. We don't really care about what the MLB or the NBA or the WNBA do or NHL. Get me to my football. They wouldn't do something like this. That's the only thing that I'm disappointed about is it is unfortunately it couldn't have as big of an impact as it possibly could have just because of the state of the country. But I'm so happy that it happened. We will have to wait and see what the impact is with respect to arenas, I should say stadiums, in the National Football League, because we're hearing all kinds of different things now. Some will play with some fans. Some will play with no fans at all. Uh, you know, it, it's right now a real quandary as to what's going to happen when the season starts. Uh, but the thing that I, I, w- I was most pleased with is that all of the players everywhere followed the lead. I'd said to my son, it would be something if the NHL stepped in and did the same thing. Because, you know, obviously, like the NBA, which a large percentage of the NBA players are black, a large percent of the NHL players are white. And they stood up. They stood up. And they made their statement and canceled their games, which I thought was terrific. Uh, and 
you know, what can they do? Well, they can do what I said they should do is that the players went to the owners and the owners relented or maybe not relented, but maybe just agreed hundred percent. They are going to do, they're going to open their arenas and turn them into polling places because that's one of the things that, uh, really needs to be addressed is the suppression of the vote. And that's usually with minorities. Um, those less able to get to the polls, those more affected by the virus, because you know, blacks and Hispanics have been far more affected by the virus uh, than white people have uh, for various reasons. A lot of it's got to do with you know, the jobs that many of them have, which requires them to go to work because many have jobs where you can't do them from home. So the more you're out there, the more you're exposed. I'm not a doctor, but chances are the greater you're exposed, the greater chance you can get the virus. Uh, and the greater chance that you know, more black people and, and more brown people and more you know, minorities are going to die. And that's exactly what's happened in terms of the percentages. And I think opening up the arenas and the stadiums uh, and turning them into polling places can have a huge impact on the opportunity of everyone's vote to be properly counted. Because that's what our system is about. Do I care who you vote for? Sure, I care who you vote for, because I want a certain person to win. But more importantly, I care about every vote fairly cast being counted. Because that's what our system is about. Our system is about one man, one vote, until it comes to the Electoral College, and that everyone who has the right to vote and wants to vote should have the chance to vote, and if they do vote, their vote should be counted. And anything that the NBA players and owners and other professional athletes and owners can do to facilitate that is good. Now, does it greatly change the current circumstances? No. But my personal opinion from this platform is that it has a chance to greatly change the circumstances in which we live and the environment in the big picture. Because right now, you know, this country is basically Oregon, Oregon State. We are having a, a second civil war. You're far too young to, to even know about this, but if you've studied history at all, we're basically back in 1968. We've gone back in time. We've jumped into the time tunnel on ABC when I was a kid, Jimmy Darren, uh, look it up. Our show, Friday nights, lasted a season or two. We've jumped into the time tunnel and we're back in 1968 because we are at war. We're in each other's throats. I'm not going to go crazy over the reason. I voiced the reason already. It is the reason. Everybody knows with half a brain what the reason is. It starts at the top, but the point is we need to all elect whomever the next president is going to be together. We need to do that as a group by everyone casting their votes. And everyone who casts their votes, having their votes counted. So I think opening up the polling places, uh, or I should say opening up the arenas and stadiums to become polling places is advantageous uh, to making change, to having change take place, to seeing change for the positive because I think when we see that everybody is out there who wants to vote with the chance to vote, um, it makes for a better, more satisfying system for everybody. And that's the goal. 
part of the corner. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. Speaking of 1968, I'm going to give you the reins on this. Deserved reins. New York Mets legend Tom Seaver passed away tonight at the age of 75. Hall of Famer, World Series champion, three-time Cy Young winner, terrific as the nickname goes. So tell the new report portion of our listeners what made Tom Seaver so great. Tom Terrific, the original Mr. Matt, was not simply the greatest Matt in history. Tom Seaver was, in my lifetime, uh, one of, and again, this is the old report, and this is with all due respect to Greg Maddox and with all due respect to Pedro Martinez, um, Tom Seaver was one of the two best right-handed pitchers I've ever seen. He was right there with Bob Gibson. Uh, they were, he was an incredible competitor. He had, he had, he had incredible stuff. I mean, he had, he had great stuff. Uh, you know, the guns weren't prevalent back then, but Tom Seaver, you know, if you had the gun on him in his prime, I'm sure it was mid-90s. He threw incredibly hard. He was an incredible competitor, very durable, but he was not a thrower. He was a pitcher. He defined, he helped define the modern age of pitching, mixing pitches, Uh, not always rearing back and throwing absolutely as hard as you had to throw, but using it when you had to and attacking hitters with a thinking man's approach. He was an incredibly bright guy. All-American at USC. Um, I watched him come up, believe it or not, with the then Jacksonville Sons of the International League when they were the Mets AAA farm team, you know, when they would visit my Rochester Red Wings before they moved to Tidewater, where they were for the longest time. And the Mets AAA uh, minor league team moved there and then later to Norfolk. Uh, actually, Tidewater played in Norfolk. Uh, but the point was, I saw him come up as a kid and I knew, I saw Kuzman come up too and Gary Gentry, all those guys, they all passed, and, you know, they all passed through uh, Jacksonville slash Tidewater. Um, he was brilliant. And as a Cardinal fan, you know, back then, because remember, the Cardinals won the World Series in 68 behind Bob Gibson. They lost a 3-1 lead in 68 when Bob Gibson lost game seven to Mickey Lolich uh, when he had a shutout going and Kurt Flood misjudged Jim Northrop's line drive that turned into a, a two-run scoring triple that won the game. And the Cardinals lost that game seven. Gibson had won uh, seven, straight, seven straight World Series games, two in 64 to defeat the Yankees, three in 67 to defeat the Red Sox, and two more in – 68 uh, to beat Detroit, including 17 strikeouts in game one. And I just considered Gibson a god and unbeatable. That was the last year of 
non-divisional play where you just had a league champion and off to the World Series. The Miracle Mets of 69 were the first season of divisional play, and they were the Miracle Mets. The Mets were hideous from their onset, and then they came out of nowhere in 69 with a huge second half, caught, blew the Cubs away. Seaver was the Cy Young Award winner. Um, He took the mantle from Gibson, and the Cardinals didn't make the postseason again until 1982. And the Mets were in the same division with the Cardinals back in the East. And the Mets were one of the Cardinals' nemesis. So I hated Seaver because the Cardinals could not beat him. He was dominant. And he was such a thinking man's combination of skill, grit, and incredible, incredible competitive spirit all mixed in and topped off the cherry on the Sunday was his brilliance of his mental approach to pitching the way he attacked hitters. And it was just a thing of beauty to watch him pitch. And I watched him his entire career, which the, the stunning trade to the Reds uh, because he got into a discourse with uh, Dick Young, very famous sports writer from the New York Post, uh, was in the Daily News, I forget which paper he was at the time, uh, where there was a controversy with uh, his wife, and he said, that's it. Uh, I'm never playing for the Mets again. He got traded to Cincinnati, uh, pitched for them in the playoffs. Not the Big Red Machine. It was a little less than the Big Red Machine. Uh, And then wound his way to the White Sox, back to the Mets. Um, had an incredibly amazing career. Watched him pitch for the White Sox, uh, where I believe it, I believe he won his 300th game for the White Sox, if memory serves correct. Went on to become a terrific announcer. Uh, listening to him in the booth uh, was the way him and Reggie Jackson in the booth together from the offensive and defensive stand- and pitching standpoint were great together. And Seaver was he was he was he, he, was, he was brilliant on the mound. And it was the physical attributes and the mental approach that, that made him such an all-time great. He's, he's one of the two best right-handed pitchers I've ever seen and one of the five best starting pitchers of my lifetime, without a doubt. He is Mr. Matt, and it's a shame at only 75 years old, uh, we've lost him to Alzheimer's disease. Went on to have a very successful as I said, career as an announcer, uh, back to his home state of California, where he had his vineyards and wineries. And it's a very sad day for me who watched literally one of the greats of all time and one of the greatest of my lifetime, gone at far too young an age. And also the fact that we lost him, um, you know, and, and we lost his baseball expertise. We lost his commentary. We lost his sense of humor, all of which were wonderful. Far too soon, because he could still have been broadcasting games at that age, because we know many guys do it. And, you know, he was stricken with dementia, which obviously the next thing from there is Alzheimer's. It progressed far too quickly. And you know, today he's gone. At only 75 years old. And if you saw him, I mean, Tom Seaver today would 
be the best pitcher in baseball. It's the best way I could put it. There would be, whether it's Jacob deGrom, whether it's Garrett Cole, they're not Tom Seaver. And this is back in the day when you finished what you started as well. But he was he was durable. He was tough. He was he, he was everything you want. A great starting pitcher. He was a leader. Uh, he had great heart. Fielded his position well. Was no slouch with the bat. He just competed. He competed every. When you watch Tom Seaver pitch, you saw a star at the top level of the sport go out and compete every pitch he threw. Every inning, every game. He never cheated anybody who watched him out of one cent of what they paid for that ticket. He's truly an all-time great. Hall of Famer, first year of eligibility. All-timer. One of the players that I don't know of anybody that I watched in my lifetime that I had more respect for the way they competed with their skill set, both mentally and physically, and the way he always handled himself. Always with class, always with style. Uh, Greatness doesn't even begin to describe everything that he was on and off the field. It's a a huge loss. Yeah, the Hall of Fame, Baseball Hall of Fame, released the statement announcing the news that it was Louis Body Dementia as a cause of death, which Robin Williams was plagued with for the last couple of years of his life and COVID-19, which as we know is unfortunately killed over 185,000 people. So it, it, the unfortunate end to his story that I, I believe it was in the mid part of this decade when people started noticing he, he wasn't remembering things and there was an early onset of that. And, and once it progressed, he wasn't in the public eye since 2019. So we, we missed out on that. But as a pitcher, you're, you're hundred percent right. And for my generation, you know, you hear of Tom Seaver, you, you could hop on YouTube and watch him throw, but watching highlights of a pitcher sometimes aren't the most fascinating things, but from what he said about pitching from the books that were written by him or about him on pitching. He afforded a lot of pitchers, a lot of great information. And we saw it, especially in the nineties, you rattled off some names when you were talking about how he was able to pitch. I mean, you could just see it, the impact that he had on the game. And somebody, there was a couple jokes on Twitter. You know, poor Tom Seaver. If he was on the Mets now, He'd have, you know, a a 1.9 ERA throwing eight innings a game, and he'd still only have about two wins. (laughs) His trademark was that left knee. He had an incredibly powerful trunk, and he always made uh, note of how important the base was for a pitcher. And very often you would see his left knee uh, would be left knee. His right knee, excuse me, would be dirty because that right knee would get so low that it would scrape the ground. Uh, oftentimes, uh, it would scrape the mound. Oftentimes, on his release, um, he was a remarkable, remarkable 
uh, pitcher. Remarkable athlete. Uh, clearly uh, one of the, the greatest that I've ever seen. And uh, as I said, also, he was a great listen breaking down a game as a pitcher uh, in the postseason. Uh, you know, did Yankee games on WPIX, but listening to him in the postseason was really special because, you know, in the postseason, every at bat is a huge at bat. And it's just accentuated, uh, you know, in, in terms of the, the one-on-one battle between the pitcher and the hitter. And it was just such a great listen to hear him break down uh, what he would do, what he was watching, what he thought the pitcher's approach was. Um, it was great stuff for somebody who loves the game the way I do and grew up literally watching him from the beginning of his career to the very end. Somebody I've always admired because of not just greatness, but how he carried himself you know, on and off the baseball field. Meanwhile, in the sport he played, we won't break anything down aside from me saying that my New York Yankees sort of suck. Breaking down your New York Yankees are broken down. Yeah, they have. They have. And it's the this year, as you've coined for the year, everybody has an asterisk. We still haven't had any shirts sent to us with that logo. Working on those t-shirts. Working on those t-shirts. The world has an asterisk, folks. The slogan for writing it. If we see it somewhere else, we're suing. Yep. And you know how to handle that. So that's perfect. That's exactly right. I'll do the social media and the press release stuff and and we'll get to the bottom of everything. The slogan for baseball is really just the race to 60. Just get to 60 because everybody and their brother will make it into the postseason. That's where the Yankees are at. That's where the whole league is at. Unfortunately, another small spike caused the A's and Mariners to miss a couple of games, but knock on wood, this hasn't been as common as we feared it would be to this point. Fingers remain crossed that that doesn't happen and it continues the way it is. Baseball will obviously get exciting in the next couple of weeks. The bubble has worked and continues to work. And thank God for that. We'll have more NBA playoffs next week and possibly a college football preview. We'll see. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. We'll do it again. Next Hello, week. High water. We know one thing is for sure. The SEC rolls on. <laughs> Folks, for my partner, the great John Tiny Lund, I am Albert AKL from White Plains. Have a great and safe sports week. We'll be back 8 p.m. Eastern time here on Sports Radio America. You can listen at sportsradioamerica.com and interact with the show there as well or find us on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America. You can also follow John Lund under the same handle on Twitter at London Bridge. Thanks again for listening.